You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 5. Welcome to this special edition of Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. On June 1st, the Supreme Court issued its highly anticipated decision in the combined cases of U.S. XRL Shoot EV Supervalue and U.S. XRL Proctor v. Safeway. In a unanimous decision, the Court vacated the Seventh Circuit's decision to affirm the lower court's grant of summary judgment in these cases. In so doing, the justices rejected the application of the objective reasonableness standard it articulated in Safeco Insurance v. Burr, ruling that False Claims Act liability turns on whether defendants had a subjective belief that their claims were false, not whether their interpretation of a law or regulation was objectively reasonable. Writing for the majority, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, The question presented is whether respondents could have the scienter required by the FCA if they correctly understood that standard and thought that their claims were inaccurate. We hold that the answer is yes. What matters for an FCA case is whether the defendant knew the claim was false. Thus, if respondents correctly interpreted the relevant phrase and believed their claims were false, then they could have known their claims were false. End quote. Thomas added that tying the Safeco standard to the False Claims Act was a mistake because the standard is so aligned with the text of the Fair Credit Reporting Act which has a different standard of willfulness. This is the biggest case involving the False Claims Act to go before the court since 2016, when the justices issued their ruling in Escobar. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Arnold Reporter partners Tirza Lawler and Christian Sheehan, who break down the implications of the ruling. And Tirza and Christian, welcome to the podcast. Before we start, let's take a moment to introduce you again to our audience. Tirza, let's start with you. Sure. Hi, Bill. It's great to be back again. So I'm Tirza Lawler. I'm a partner in the White Collar Group here at Arnold & Porter, where I focus, among other things, on False Claims Act defense, both in litigation and investigations. And Christian? Thanks, Bill. Good to be back with you. I am also a partner in the White Collar Group here in Arnold & Porter's DC office, and I also focus on False Claims Act defense at sort of all phases from investigation to trial and through uh, appeal. So look forward to talking to you again today. Great. Well, welcome back. We're pleased to have both of you with us today. So this was a very big decision, and took me a little off guard because I was not expecting it till the end of the month, to be honest. Uh, so what was your reaction to this one? So I think many folks were in agreement with you, Bill. We were a little surprised that it came right at the beginning of the month. I think coming out of the argument, it did seem that there was room for everyone to coalesce uh, around one kind of conclusion such that we thought, you know, maybe we'd see an opinion in like, call it mid-June rather than right to the end. But I don't think any of us at least were expecting it right on June 1st. The the other thing that I think is surprising is that the other False Claims Act case that was heard this term um, regarding the government's authority to dismiss a non-intervened case where it doesn't intervene at the beginning, but then if it wants to intervene kind of, you know, midway in the case in order to dismiss the case, the Polanski case, that was argued, I believe, in December, whereas Schutte was argued, I think, in April. 
and of course, SCOTUS has yet to roll in Polanski. So I think that was another big surprise for me. We were, I was expecting to to get the ruling in Polanski first. Right, right. And that on the surface, that seems like a much easier decision, really. You yeah. Know, it kind of seems like a no-brainer. We talked about this before. We were very surprised that they even took up the case. So yeah, well, I digress. So were you surprised that the decision was unanimous? I think the court, listen, I'm not a Supreme Court expert, but I think the court where it can is trying to reach unanimity, even if it means it needs to have maybe a more narrow ruling. And remember, when the last big False Claims Act case that they heard, there was another one that was kind of smaller about statute of limitations. But the last kind of big one that everybody was focused on, Escobar on materiality, that was unanimous as well. Christian, I don't know if you have another thought on that. No, that was my thought as well. And I mean, Escobar was also a Justice Thomas drafted opinion. So I think at the argument, you could see widespread agreement on the basic principle that knowledge under the FCA is subjective, not objective. But then I think there was disagreement about where you go and what justice is called the, the hard cases. So I guess I'm not that surprised, given that the opinion was relatively narrow, that they were able to get unanimity. I think if the opinion had been broader, I think there would have been some dissents and concurrences. But I think that's how they got a unanimous decision was to at least try to keep it narrow. What are the key takeaways from this one? The number one takeaway, right, is the Safeco objective reasonableness test is not the test not the standard for Center under the False Claims Act, even though every you know, court of appeals to consider it had applied safe codes, Supreme Court disagreed and held that the focus is on subjective knowledge. Uh, so it's not the knowledge of an objective observer, it's what the defendant actually knew. And so the court certainly didn't answer every question about Center, but did give some pretty clear guideposts on what will be required from plaintiffs, so from the government or relators moving forward. And that's some proof of subjective knowledge for each of the three Center standards, right? So the FCA defines knowledge to mean actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard. So actual knowledge, that's pretty straightforward, right? You have to actually know that the claim is false. For reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance, on its face is less clear, but the Supreme Court was pretty clear and said that it requires subjective awareness of a substantial risk that the claim was false and then disregard for that risk. So what that means is it should not be enough to say that the defendant should have known about the risk, right? That a risk was obvious and defendants should have known about it. According to the Supreme Court's reasoning, Plaintiffs will need to point to some actual evidence that the defendant knew about the risk. The court also made clear that knowledge has to be contemporaneous with the submission of the claim. So the court, I think, addressed that in the context of addressing the relator's argument about post hoc interpretations, right? So the relator and the government had said that you shouldn't get out of jail free right, if you believed at the time what you were doing was wrong and come up with a creative interpretation after the fact. Court said, no, you can't do that. Focus is what on on what you knew at the time. But 
that cuts both ways, right? So that also means that the government or a relator can't prove knowledge at the time of claim submission based on something that happens after the fact. They can't say that you were aware of a risk at the time based on events that may have transpired after the fact. So, so that's, I think, important. Maybe a sort of folks haven't focused on that as much, that aspect of the decision as much and what I've um, looked at, but I think that that will be very important moving forward. And then the last piece is the court assumed without deciding that pure misrepresentations of law aren't actionable under the False Claims Act. It's a Justice Thomas opinion, right? So it relies heavily on common law throughout. And including in this part about misrepresentations of law, and Justice Thomas cites the common law of fraud and a number of authorities that, the, that a misrepresentation about the law is not actionable. What that means exactly is less clear because the court said that the representations in Schutte weren't misrepresentations of law, even though they you know, could, by most accounts, be classified that way. So that, I think, will be one area in which we should watch the lower courts and see how they, they handle that and whether that you know, is an issue that ultimately ends up back before the court again to give clarification. But those are the, so those are sort of the key takeaways that I, I see. Before we go into some of the broader implications of the decision, uh, where does the, specifically does the case go from here? What's next for the parties? It will be remanded to the Seventh Circuit. So the court didn't reverse, it vacated. It vacated and remanded for further proceedings consistent with the opinion, which could mean the Seventh Circuit will decide it or remand to the district court. The Supreme Court gave very clear signals that it thought that there was enough evidence here of subjective knowledge to get past summary judgment. So if the Seventh Circuit is reading the Supreme Court signals, it may reverse the grant of summary judgment for the defendants, and then it'll go back to the district court for trial. But it's also possible that, you know, that the Seventh Circuit would rather the district court address it in the first instance. So it's either, right, the district court or the Seventh Circuit will, will decide next. Right. Given the decision itself, what do you see as the effect of this holding on FCA litigation going forward? This may be, I don't know how widely held this 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 belief is, but I think that when the dust settles, there's probably more, at least as much, if not maybe more, for the defense side than for the plaintiff side coming out of this case. I see Christian making a making an interesting face. <laughs> when it comes down to it, I'm just trying to think back. We've been making safe-go arguments in False Claims Act cases, you know, for years. But I think there's maybe a minority of cases where you win the day based on a safe-go argument, safe-go scienter knowledge. I mean, obviously, that's what happened in, in Schutte and Proctor. So there's two cases right there. Oftentimes, the same kind of legal arguments are framed in terms of falsity, that if there's ambiguity, that you cannot have an objective falsehood such that your claims cannot be false. And of course, this recent opinion does nothing to disturb the ability to make those arguments. In fact, we got a little bit of traction from some justices that were kind of 
thinking, almost thinking about these same issues in terms of falsity. But the government and the Relators Council quickly oriented the justices back to know we're talking about Sienter here. So that's one. And then two, for the reasons that Christian described, the fact that the government and the relator now are going to have to point to contemporaneous subjective knowledge beliefs on the part of the defendants at the time that the claims were submitted, I think that is that is very important clarity. Um, and frankly, it's something that you're going to see lawyers, you know, pointing to. I think with some frequency, and and also the the bit about misrepresentations of law potentially not being actionable. There's going to be kind of thorny questions about is this a misrepresentation of law or is it a misrepresentation of law mixed with fact? And so I think kind of very similar to what we saw in the wake of Escobar, there's going to be all sorts of kind of new legal arguments that will be made. And to Christian's point, we may, you know, end up back before SCOTUS, you know, some years down the road. We've been saying that about Escobar for years. We haven't seen it yet. So, you know, that's just that's just Tears of Lawler speaking. That's just my take. So I like Tears' optimism uh, that there's more good than bad here. I certainly agree it's not an unmitigated disaster that, you know, people were a little fearful of after the argument. Safeco was a strong defense and it's gone now. But I do think that Tears is right, that there is a lot here for, for the defense bar to work with. On objective falsity, I mean, that's possible that that's the next issue before the Supreme Court. There's a clear split on objective <laughs> falsity, and the, the court has denied uh, cert petitions on that in the past, but it also denied cert petitions on objective reasonableness on Safeco. So it's possible now that the objective reasonableness is gone, that objective falsity sort of comes to the forefront more. You're you're raining on my parade, Christian. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. It's possible. It's possible. So in terms of the impact going forward, one of the real benefits of the Safeco test was that it allowed for disposition of cases on motion. Frequently at summary judgment, sometimes on a motion to dismiss. Less frequently, but sometimes on a motion to dismiss. The focus on subjective knowledge is more, uh, and I'll use air quotes here, facty, right? Than whether a elite an interpretation is objectively reasonable. Now, that's not to say I still think there are pl plenty of cases where the shooty standard will lead to dispositional motion. So, a motions to dismiss, right? The relator will need to allege contemporaneous subjective knowledge, and it won't be enough to say, "Hey, there's this." It shouldn't be enough to say that, "Hey, there's this obvious risk out there." and the defendant should have known about it, right? So that potentially, particularly a problem for relators that aren't insiders, um, you know, and we see a lot of those who don't have firsthand knowledge of the deliberations within a company and who aren't going to be able to point to, you know, the quote unquote bad emails where somebody says that, hey, this is, we think this is wrong, but we should do it anyway, right? And then on summary judgment, I mean, I think a lot of cases will still be disposed of at summary judgment under Shruti because the relator of the government is going to have to point to actual evidence for any of the three Sienter standards, actual evidence of subjective knowledge. So it remains to be seen how that shakes out, but I, I do think that we'll still see plenty of cases disposed of on motion on Sienter grounds 
though it may it may take a, a little while to for all of that to to shake out and i think we may see defendants relying more on other elements in the meantime particularly objective falsity i will add also one of the concerns that were raised in a number of the amicus briefs in support of the defendants was this concern that a a test that requires looking at subjective knowledge has significant implications for attorney-client privilege protection, right? So the concern, and this, this really didn't get much, if any, traction at the argument, which was a little surprising. Um, but so the, the concern, right, is that when the company is trying to determine how to interpret an ambiguous regulation, taking that as an example, um, oftentimes it is going to bring in counsel in order to assess, assist with coming to the interpretation. And so those communications would typically be protected. But now under the Schutte test, a defendant might have to choose between do I waive my privilege to share what we discussed with our lawyers to show that we really didn't have this you know, subjective knowledge um, to get out of the case, or am I, or would I prefer to protect my privilege, even though I would then be shielding potentially, you know, exculpatory, not, it's not criminal, but right, communications. I do think that that is going to be a, maybe an unwanted consequence of, of this ruling. Yeah, and I think one other question that we've seen that's been litigated, but that may come to the forefront a little bit is whose knowledge within a company is enough for the company itself to be liable, right? If there's a sort of a, you know, a low-level employee who sends an email and that's the only evidence that anyone was aware of a risk, is that going to be enough, number one, to get past summary judgment? Um, I think that's really the first question. Is that going to be enough to get past summary judgment? And then, you know, in the rare FCA case that does go to trial, is that going to be enough at at trial. So I think that those sorts of questions about imputation of knowledge and even collective knowledge, right? So when you have different employees within a company that know different pieces of the story, can you put those all together to create the sort of a, the corporate knowledge that no actual person has? I think we'll see more, I think we'll see a lot of litigation about that too because of the focus on now on subjective knowledge. So in light of this decision, even though it, it was pretty narrow, what, what advice would you give to your clients to you know, try to avoid litigation or even uh, to defend themselves against uh, possible litigation? Don't write anything down. <laughs> 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 Which of course is completely impractical. You just need to recognize, right? The de the decision makers within the company, and to Christian's point, you know whose whose knowledge matters. But you just need to be you need to recognize that what gets recorded as you are kind of going through the sausage making of trying to come come to a decision about how you're going to interpret, you know, an, an ambiguous regulation or legal obligation. You just need to be, I think, a little prudent in terms of what you write down to the extent that you can. And then once there is a decision and the company has come to a decision that you do want to document because there, there's now this laser focus on what the company thought, what the company knew at the time. 
I guess that would be my my one kind of pointer takeaway. No, and just to piggyback off of that, I think in terms of the sausage making, right? If it, I mean, if it really is developing a position and interpretation of a statute regulation, I mean, you would want, I think you would want counsel involved anyway. But then if the sausage making is conducted with counsel involved, then the sausage making is privileged, right? And then if you document the final result, in theory, then that's the only thing that should be discoverable. And the sausage making, if it can be contained to the communications with counsel and the you know, the small group, I mean, that creates the cleanest record, right? Easier said than done. Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you again, Christian and Tirza. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. Maybe we'll have you again in a few weeks if we get an interesting decision on uh, DOJ's dismissal authority. Thank you for that uh, analysis of the decision and those takeaways for our listeners. And thank you for tuning in. And we'll be back next time. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the Pub K Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.